Bible classes now if they would like to. All right, well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 17. We're going we're gonna to back up just one verse uh, into chapter 16 before we get into chapter 17. Uh, <clears throat> Pastor Brent left me with one of the most controversial verses in the Bible. <laughs> it's like, yeah, Chad will figure that out next week. <laughs> um, I'm probably not going to solve the mystery today, just so you know, but uh, uh, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 28, uh, Jesus is speaking uh, to His disciples. He uh, had just foretold uh, to them about His death and His, his resurrection, uh, and then He makes this comment as we head into chapter 17. So, 16, 28, He says, "'Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom.'" Now, people much smarter than me have debated this over a long period of time uh, as to what Jesus actually was saying here, and, and I'm going to give you some of maybe the more popular options uh, of what this could be. Uh, the fir- first thing that it could be, there, there's seven kind of popular options debated among theologians, and the first uh, option is that it's the transfiguration, which we're about to see. I think that makes probably the most sense. But some of the other things that, that theologians debate that Jesus could have been talking about is He could have been talking about uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, he could have been talking about uh, His own resurrection. He could have been talking about His ascension. Uh, he could have been talking about, uh, according to one theologian, the spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church. could have been talking about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. could have been talking about His own second coming. Uh, and then some theologians might say it could be all of the above, could be any kind of combination uh, of those things or all of those things uh, together. But what we're going to see today uh, in Matthew 17 as we look at the transfiguration is we're going to get a bit of a peek behind the curtain uh, of, of Christ and His glory. And so it would seem to make sense that, that what He was telling His disciples is that you're going to see something here pretty soon uh, that's going to be significant and something that's going to matter. And so as we get into uh, chapter 17, it says this, that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said, Lord, it's not good that... uh, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When his disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And we'll pause there for a second. And so, so this is kind of a cool scene that, that's unfolding, maybe a bit of an unbelievable scene that's unfolding uh, that Jesus' disciples, a couple of His disciples, uh, get this special peek behind the curtain. Now here's what's interesting. After six days, so six days after Jesus told them that you're going to see the Son of Man coming in His glory, this, this thing happens. And, and I want to try and make maybe some correlations to things that have happened in the past and, and into the Old Testament. And so when we look back into Exodus chapter 24, 
God showed his glory. Uh, he covered this mountain with his glory, and Moses went up after six days. And Moses took with him uh, two of his buddies, Nadab and Abihu. When Moses went up, there, there, were, there were three men, Moses, Nadab, and Abihu. Here in the transfiguration, we see Jesus with Moses and Elijah, so, so probably no mistake there that Moses was involved in this. Uh, and then there were Peter, James, and John, who, according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, uh, these three men are pillars of the church, right? They, they're not all that impressive up to this point in, in the Gospel of Matthew, but as the book of Acts would unfold, they would become pillars of the church. And, and then this whole thing takes place on a mountain, and interestingly enough, uh, both Moses and Elijah had experiences with God on a mountain. Moses uh, representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. Uh, but if we look at Exodus 33, starting in verse 18, we see that Moses had this experience. He says, Moses said to God, please show me your glory. Moses just asked for it. And God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will, pro will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy but, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, so Moses has this interesting experience with God and, and getting his own sort of peek behind the curtain. Uh, if we jump forward to Exodus 34, we're told, starting in verse 29, that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai after this whole thing had gone down with the two tablets of the testimony or the Ten Commandments in his hand, he came down from the mountain and Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them that the Lord, all that the Lord had spoken with them at Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. So, so Moses has this experience of, of his own peek behind the curtain, getting to see to, to some extent, to the fullest extent possible for a human, to see the glory of God. And, and it affected him physically. His face, I mean, this is kind of a crazy, like we read this and think, is this, is this real? And, and yes, this, this is a real thing that, that happened. And so Moses being the representative of the law in this transfiguration scene, and then Elijah being the representative of the prophets, had his own experience on the mountain in 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 9. And, and Elijah, kind of leading up to this, uh, had a showdown with, with some prophets of Baal. You, you can read this on your own if you want to look it up later. But basically, God came through in a pretty big way uh, for Elijah. And after this thing happened, Elijah got afraid for his life and he ran. And in 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 9, it says that he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
And I love it when God asks questions. When God asks questions, it's not that he doesn't know the answer. God's questions are for your benefit, not for his, right? He knew what Elijah was doing there, and he asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and a strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets, and the sword, and with the sword, I and even only I am left, and they seek to take my life away. And the Lord said to him in this low whisper, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. <clears throat> so Elijah has this experience of God also on a mountain in a cave. And unlike Moses, this doesn't physically affect Elijah. But, but Elijah, afraid for his life, and God reminds him that you're not the only one. I've got 7,000 over here, and whoever gets away from this guy, this guy's going to capture and kill, right? He gives him some encouragement in this mountain, and, and God's whisper, his, he came in the whisper of the low voice, not the fire, not the earthquake, not the wind that destroyed a mountain. Can you imagine a wind that would cause a mountain to crumble? can't imagine being in that, and this was what Elijah got the front row seat for. And so you have these two prophets of old who would have been well-known in Jewish history. Everybody knows Elijah and Moses, right? You don't have to say their last names. You don't have to tell, like, everybody just knows Moses and Elijah by first name, who they are and what they did. <clears throat> and these are the two that are standing side by side with Jesus in our text today as he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Jesus said of himself in Matthew chapter 5, just a few chapters before our text today, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. 12 chapters before this, Jesus makes this statement, and here we are in Matthew 17, and we see the law and the prophets standing side by side with him. This has to give some kind of authentication to who Jesus is, not, not that he needed it up to this point, right? Jesus had, had done enough things where, you know, people should know who he is. But if there were any doubt in anybody's mind, th there's no doubt now it's a race that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 
told the people that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And, and here's Moses, thousands of years later, standing next to the prophet that was raised up that Moses pointed to. Peter, one of the pillars of the church, would write of this experience in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. And he says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter giving his eyewitness account and connecting the dots of prophecy, the prophecy that would point ultimately to who Jesus is, Moses says that's from the Holy Spirit. That's not a cleverly devised scheme of any man. John would write of this experience in John chapter 1, and he had a little bit less about it to say than Peter, but he would say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Two of the three pillars of the church would recount this experience, and there were a number of things that they saw in this. If you think about the transfiguration, we see fully or as fully as we can handle as human beings we, we see the glory of God. His face shone as the sun. His clothes were white as light, similar to Moses when he came down the mountain. He had to veil his face in front of the people because the people couldn't handle it. And God himself wouldn't let Moses see God's own face because it, he couldn't handle it. Jesus shone with this similar kind of glory that we see. Not only do we see his glory, we see authenticity of who Jesus is. Again, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Him, and the representative of the law and the representative of the prophets are there side by side with Jesus in this moment of transfiguration. We see glory, authenticity. We see the superiority of Jesus. Imagine if you're Peter, James, and John as much as you can in this, this moment that's happening before them. Peter, as Peter does, is pretty quick to speak. Hey, let me, let me build a tent. Let me, let, me, let me put up a tent for you and for Elijah and for Moses. I don't know if you caught in verse 5, when he was still speaking, we're told that a bright cloud overshadowed them. The father interrupted Peter in his uh, haste to do a good thing. And there was a voice from the cloud that said, this is my beloved son. Can you imagine? <laughs> imagine being on a mountain, cloud coming over it, and then all of a sudden the cloud starts to speak. And he says, this is my beloved son. God, the father in that moment, didn't point out Moses and Elijah and didn't have anything to say about them, but he pointed out his son. This is Jesus. This is my beloved son. And so we, we, we see that Jesus has superiority over 
Moses and Elijah as the one who fulfilled both the law and the prophets. And not only is Jesus the beloved son of the Father, he's the beloved son of the Father with whom the Father is well pleased. So we see that Jesus has approval, right? The son has the approval of his father. And then the father says, listen to him. This is the same thing that Moses said thousands of years before. Moses pointed to this moment, maybe a bit unknowingly on his part, but pointed to this future moment. There's going to come someone like me, but listen to him. And here's God the Father saying, this is who he is. This is the one that Moses was talking about. Listen to him. And so he has authority, right? Authority granted to him by the Father in the command that we ought to listen to him. And then the disciples, their, their reaction is that they fell to the ground and they were afraid. Can you blame them? They fell to the ground and they were afraid, but Jesus comes to them and says, have no fear. This isn't the first time that Jesus has told his disciples not to be afraid. Not the last time that Jesus will tell his disciples not to be afraid. But just a few chapters back, you might remember when the disciples were out on a boat in the middle of the sea and things weren't going so well. There was wind and waves, and the boat was being rocked, and Jesus shows up out in the middle of the sea just walking on water in the middle of the night. And another moment, like the disciples were afraid. And Jesus then told them to have no fear. So we see that Jesus is sovereign. We see His sovereignty in the, just the command to have no fear. The disciples got up in the moment had passed and the cloud had gone away and things were kind of back to normal, right? Jesus is sovereign over these things. And then as Jesus sometimes would do, in verse 9, they're coming down the mountain and He says, tell no one of this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. There's intentionality that's happening here, right? There's a plan that's unfolding. And Jesus is telling them, like, it's not time like, don't go, don't, don't go down the mountain and tell all your buddies what just happened. And that would be hard. Like, this cool thing happened, and like, you want to go down the mountain and say, you're never going to guess what I just saw. And Jesus tells them, not yet. It's not time. The time is going to come after the resurrection. He's pointing to yet another future event that's going to happen, telling them that he is going to raise from the dead. And so, in this just quick, brief moment, we see... Christ's glory, we see His authenticity, His superiority, His approval from the Father, His authority, His sovereignty, His intentionality. Maybe there's more things that we see in this, but that's just a really quick list of, just in this quick moment, things that we see about who Christ is. Then again, if there were any doubt up to this point, it should be erased right now, if you're Peter, James, and John, but, but even for us reading about this. If this happened, if this really happened, and it did, that this should erase the doubt about who Christ is and what Christ has done. Verse 10, the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. 
And then the disciples understood that they were speaking, or he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And so there's kind of this another little weird moment here where Jesus makes this connection between Elijah and John the Baptist. And like, is, is he saying that they're one and the same? I don't know that he's quite saying that. But again, Elijah as a representative of the prophets and, and John the Baptist being the, the prophet, right? It's said of John the Baptist that he was the greatest man born of a woman. That's a pretty hefty title. The greatest man born of, of a woman. And his job, John the Baptist, was to prepare the way for Jesus. And John would say of himself that he wasn't even worthy to stoop down and touch the sandals of Jesus. Right? As, as great of a man as John the Baptist was, he, he was not too great. Matter of fact, in his own mind, he was not great enough to even stoop down and, and touch the sandals of Jesus. And, and you might remember how John died. Right? John was out in the wilderness doing his thing, a bit of an eccentric fellow. The Bible paints the picture of him out doing his own thing out in the wilderness, baptizing people. And John sees Jesus one day and he says, oh, look, the Lamb of, the God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John wasn't trying to build his own ministry, wasn't trying to build his own kingdom. He was solely enthralled with pointing the way to Jesus, pointing people to who Jesus was. And because of this, John was beheaded, brutal death. He was beheaded because he wouldn't stop talking about who Jesus was. And he suffered, right? We, we just read briefly about Elijah. Elijah suffered, right? He, he suffered. Uh, maybe he wasn't beheaded, but, but he suffered in that he was running for his life. But like Elijah, a prophet who proclaimed God's word, John the Baptist, is called Elijah because he prepared the way also in proclaiming the word of God about the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And Jesus is telling his disciples they had their way with John the Baptist. He suffered and they killed him. The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands, at the hands of the same people that killed John the Baptist. Right? They didn't like him. They're certainly not going to like the one to whom John was pointing. And later Jesus would tell his disciples, they didn't like me all that much. They're not going to like you either. Right? He's going to tell his disciples later that, that suffering is part of the Christian life, and that's another sermon for another day. But if the world hates Jesus, they're going to hate the followers of Jesus. Right? If Jesus faced adversity, the followers of Jesus should expect to face adversity. Jesus later would be killed by the people that he came to save. He would be nailed to a cross, and he would die a brutal death. And so the disciples, as Jesus is unpacking this on their walk down the mountain, as if they don't already have enough to process with the transfiguration, they, they connect the dots that Jesus was speaking of John the Baptist. And so this whole experience for the disciples had to be something that, that would blow their mind. And I don't know if you've looked into church history all of that much, but church history would tell us that, that all of Jesus' disciples including Peter, James, and John, they, they died martyrs' deaths because they couldn't stop talking about Jesus. They couldn't, like John the Baptist, they couldn't stop saying, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they gave their lives in service to that message. 
<clears throat> Peter, James, and John as pillars of the church gave their life in service to the message of the gospel, no doubt in part because of what they saw and what they experienced. In this passage, we get a glimpse of Jesus in, in His glory, and in, in all of His glory as much as we can handle this side of heaven. Right? There's, there's going to come a day when, for the Christian, we're in heaven for eternity, we will see the glory of Christ in its fullness. This side of heaven, we, we've gotten a glimpse, again, a little peek behind the curtain, as much as we can possibly handle. But we would do well to remember not only Jesus in His glory, <clears throat> but we would do well to remember Jesus in His humility as well. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2 tells us this about Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> and we see in these few verses that, that Paul wrote that, that Jesus comes in humility, right? Je Jesus came to this earth at the appointed time, we're told in Romans, when, when, when the time was right. And He came not, not on a horse with a shield and a sword ready to take names, but, but He came as a baby. Right? The Messiah, the Savior of the world, came in the most feeble and meek way imaginable. He showed up as a baby. Can you imagine, as an Israelite, hearing all of your life that one day the Messiah is going to come? And remember, Israel, they were, they were a very oppressed people. It seemed like they were always under somebody's thumb. And you, you would grow up as an Israelite hearing like one day the Messiah is going to come and He's going to liberate, He's going to redeem, and He's going to free us. And then one day you hear the Messiah has been born. He's here. He's here. And, and how is it that He came? As a baby. Right? Maybe some disappointment in hearing this news or disbelief, like there's, there's no way. There's no way that's real. But we're told that though Jesus was God, that He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What Paul is not saying is that He set aside His deity for a time because He didn't. But, but Jesus came in human form. He came as a baby and he was raised by his parents and had to be fed and clothed and changed for a time until he was old enough to, to do things on his own. And we see Jesus at, at a very young age pop, pops into the temple one day at about 12 years old and, and starts preaching. <laughs> we see Jesus as he grows into adulthood. We see the, the God-man doing what he does. He emptied himself Paul tells us by taking the form of a servant, we're told in Mark chapter 10 that He came not to be served, and if there were anybody that deserved to be served in all of the world, in all of time and history, it's Jesus, but He came not to be served, but He came to serve and to give His life 
as a ransom for many. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. If somebody came to you and said, hey, I have this plan, and it's going to involve you dying, every single one of us in that moment would say, nope. I, like, I don't need to hear any more of the plan. <laughs> it doesn't matter how good it is. It doesn't matter how long. Like, no. If it involves me dying, I, no. No. But Jesus obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. We see when He was in the garden as He was about to go to the cross, praying to His Father with, with intensity. If there's any other way, like now's, now's the time if there's another plan, but nevertheless, not my will, but Your will be done. There are so many things about the Christian life that are counterintuitive. And one of the things that's counterintuitive is that we find life by death, right? We find life through death. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, and as a result of this, we're told that God has highly exalted him. So much so that there's going to come a point in time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and it makes no distinction between those who do it willingly and those who do it unwillingly. But there, there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and not just on earth, but in heaven, like everywhere, that the universe will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. That time is coming. And, and what we got a glimpse of in this transfiguration passage is we, we, got, we got a glimpse of the glorified Christ. We got, we got a, gl a small glimpse of the one to whom every knee will bow and the one to whom every tongue will confess that, that he is lord of the universe. And it will be to the glory of God the Father. And the way that Jesus accomplishes this is through humility and through seemingly weakness. That, that, that should inform, a little bit of a side note here, but that should inform how we live as Christians. If this is what our Savior has done, it, it ought to inform how we as Christians interact in the world. And again, another, another talk for another time, but, but think about that for a moment of how we as Christians interact in the world with a Savior that came in humility, and a Savior that, that one day there will be no question of who He is and no question of His glory, no question of His deity, but He's revealed Himself to us in humility, right? And so again, in, in all of this, we, we see Jesus being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Do you remember what Jesus said about the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He said a lot of things, but one of the things that he said was that two things, love God with everything that you've got, all your body, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can do that, you have fulfilled the law and the prophets. Like that, that covers everything, right? And, and we see in Jesus this example of what it looks like to love God with body, mind, soul, and strength. And we see an example in Jesus of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? We have this really kind of jacked up view in our culture today of what love is. And the Bible tells us not only that God is loving, but that he is love, right? We, we, we can't love rightly apart from God. And we just have to look at Jesus to see the embodiment of perfect love, right? 
perfect love, perfect humility. And so as I kind of bring this to a close, I guess my, my encouragement today is that if you're, if you're trying to, still trying to figure out who Jesus is, I, I hope that maybe we've erased some doubts today about who Jesus is, right? If, if you're already convinced of who Jesus is, be more so convinced of who Jesus is because I don't know about you, I, I need to be convinced often and reminded often, oh, yeah, yeah, this is who Jesus is and this is what he's done and this is how much he loves those for whom he gave his life. Like the disciples who in their own way, in their own time, became convinced of who Jesus is, right? They, they gave their life in service to the message of the gospel. They gave their life in service to Christ. And I would ask you just to consider your own life and how you might give your life more so in service to Christ. Right? There's a lot of things in this world that vie for our attention. And not all bad things, just a lot of things that, that pull for our attention. And part of what we do here on Sunday mornings is to kind of bring us back to center, right? That we're reminded every week about who Christ is and what He's done for us. And, and we help each other in our endeavor to be more Christ-like and to be more centered on, on the, the message of the gospel and kingdom work. And so... I would leave you with that encouragement just to consider if all of this is true, if we've seen a glimpse of the glorified Christ, and if one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Christ is Lord, what, what, what does that mean when you head out there and out into the world? Just consider it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning um, to be here in fellowship with one another. We're grateful that we can... Uh, encourage one another. We're grateful that we get to um, sit under the authority, uh, not, not of a man or of men, but, but the, the authority of your word. And so I would pray for us today, just for a move of the Spirit in our lives, that you would open up our eyes to the things that we need to see, that you would open up our ears to the things that we need to hear, uh, and that you would help us uh, in our endeavor uh, to go out into the world and to love like Christ loved, and that you would help us in our endeavor to be people who shine the light of the gospel brightly anywhere and everywhere that we go. That you would help us to be uh, known as a church that's a beacon of hope uh, here in our community. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.